Good morning, everybody. It's interruption time once again. But as it happens every second and fourth Sunday, we also do have a church lunch after the service. So any given week, there's plenty of time to uh, continue those conversations after the service. But um, particularly on our second and fourth Sundays every month, uh, we have a bring and share lunch. Uh, So if you're visiting or if you even if you're a regular and you just straight up forgot, there's always plenty of food. So please do stay around so we can get to know you um, a little bit better this morning. Uh, My name is Steve Adams, I am the pastor here at Eastgate Bible Church. Uh, If you're regular, you know that. If you're a visitor, you know that now. Um, We've been working our way through the book of Acts, and we're actually breaking it up into three sections over the next three years. So we're not going entirely start through to finish, Uh, we're going through to about chapter 11, uh, verse 18 this year, which means actually we've only got two sermons left in our series in Acts after this week. Um, We'll pick it up from um, Acts chapter 11 again next year and then another block and another block in in the year after that. And our reasoning for doing that isn't because we get bored of Acts after a certain period of time. Uh, but we are hoping to bring ourselves back to look at the early church and looking at the gospel going forth, growing and multiplying. And we want to keep going back to that for three years consecutively as we think about our role as being um, disciples of Jesus Christ, called to make disciples, uh, so to keep us focused on that mission. That's why we've broken it up. So this time together is going to be of no use whatsoever if God isn't in it. This is God's word, this isn't Steve's word. Uh, So let us come before him in dependence in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're sorry that sometimes that we think of you in such plain terms, such common terms at times, that the almighty creator of the world who gives us our life and breath and everything would stoop so low to make himself known to his creation, that he would bestow his great love and grace upon his creation. And that even when we messed it up, that you would delight in sending your son Jesus Christ to bear our punishment on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that all of your word is profitable, that we might be complete and equipped for every good work, Lord, help us to have a sense of awe and joy and delight in who you are and what you have done as we look to your word this morning. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know each week I put up what's going to be the coming week's passage for people who want to read about it in advance. Now, I'm not going to take a poll to find out who actually did that, but what I would be really interested to know is that of those who did, and you don't need to tell me, this is a, what's them questions we want to answer? It's one of them ones. I can't think of the word, it's, it's gone. Um, who, if you did read it, thought, wow, I cannot wait to hear a sermon on this passage. This is going to be a life changer. I'm going to invite my second and third and fourth cousins to hear this. Because when I read through it, I thought, it's not a difficult passage to understand. It's pretty straightforward. There are two 
healings with a lot of details that we, and questions we'd ask about. It doesn't really give us much detail. Just some broad general statements that as a result, a lot of people came to believe in Jesus as Lord as a result. And you could be tempted to look at a passage like this and think, is this really a passage that's worth preaching on? Is there really a sermon in this? Actually, when Sarah and I were praying together on Wednesday night and she asked me what things she could pray for me, one of the things I said is, I'm struggling with this passage that I'm preaching on this week. It's easy to explain what it says and what's going on, but I said, I'm not too sure how to preach it. How, what, what can I bring out of this passage? Now, I know I'm setting your expectations really high to think, wow, halfway through the week, Steve had no idea what he's going to do with it. And it probably wasn't until yesterday that I came, actually completely changed the direction I was going with the sermon because where I was going to go with it was a right idea. It probably wasn't that explicitly in the passage. But by the end of yesterday, I was like, I'm convinced why... I needed to preach this passage. Why specifically I needed to preach this passage. And it may also be why many of us need to hear what we have to say and think regarding this passage. Now last week we looked at Saul's conversion. The biggest opponent of the church. The greatest persecutor who was travelling 190 kilometres to find Christians in Damascus, to try and bring it to extinction, drag them back, have them imprisoned. And on his way there, he encounters the risen Jesus Christ, whom he's been in complete denial of. And God says, this will be my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. From the greatest opponent to the Christian church becomes the greatest means by which the Christian church grew. Now, you'd be tempted to think, okay, this next week we're going to see Saul take off. We're going to see Saul's missionary endeavours. But after we see Saul return to Tarsus, we actually don't see Saul again until Acts chapter 13. And from a time perspective, this might surprise you, it's actually about 13 years between Saul's conversion and his first missionary journey with Barnabas. Now, what we know of Saul, and we saw when he was converted straight away, he's in the synagogues proclaiming Jesus boldly, proving to people that Jesus was indeed the Christ. So he's probably doing that in Tarsus. We don't have those details. But right up until Acts chapter 13, the focus primarily is on Peter. And Peter is once again the focus again today. It might be slightly surprising that Peter is predominantly the apostle to the Jewish people. Is actually, next week we'll see, is the one who is the, brings the first time the gospel to Gentiles. And we see Cornelius' conversion next week. But in today's passage, we see a lot of similarities in Peter's ministry as we do in Jesus' ministry. And in that sense, we probably shouldn't be too surprised. After all, Peter has spent three years with Jesus, very closely. He's one of his closest followers. He's seen what Jesus is doing. He's heard Jesus talk. Jesus has sent him and given him responsibilities. 
That's the nature of a discipleship relationship. The one who's being discipled becomes like the one who's discipling them. When Jesus spoke about calling his 12 disciples in Mark 3.14, says he chose 12 out of the many for the purpose that he would be with them. That's the first thing he says, so he would be with them and that he would send them out to preach. That by being in his presence, they would learn from him and learn to become like him. Now, I see this happen all the time in our household. We've got two girls who you've probably seen running around. If you're visiting, you've probably had them dribbling on you or something. Who knows? Three and a half and one and a half. And the youngest, Kenzie, learns a lot from the elder. We're trying to teach Miller this lesson at the moment. It's like, Kenzie copies you. Whatever you do, try and do things that are helping her to grow up to be a good girl. Now, she does everything her older sister does. Her older sister sits on top of the lounge. Kenzie sits on top of the lounge. Kenzie sees Miller sitting on the potty. Miller, Kenzie sits on the potty. She follows her into good things. She follows her into bad things. She follows her into dangerous things. Kenzie learns and reproduces what she sees in others. And you and I, all of us are called to be disciples, called to be disciple makers, do have an influence on the people who are around us and we should be pointing them to draw nearer and closer to Jesus. Because everything we do will either influence others nearer to Jesus or further away, whether we like it or not. But in our passage, essentially we've got two healings, And lots of people coming to faith. You have the paralytic in verses 32 to 35. Dorcas, that name probably not highest on your list if you're having children, um, you're thinking of a name. Raised to restored to life in verses 36 to 43. And then we ask the question, so what? But firstly, a paralytic who was healed. Now if you remember back to Acts chapter 7, after Stephen was martyred, we read that all of the Christians, except the apostles, scattered. Such was the persecution. The general Christians, they scattered, and we also continued to read that those who scattered went about preaching the good news about Jesus Christ where they went. But Peter, amongst the apostles, was amongst those who stayed back in Jerusalem. Now, the passage doesn't tell us specifically why they stayed in Jerusalem, It can't have been a long-term plan. It would be a bad long-term plan when Jesus has told them that you will receive power when my spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But clearly they started to move around. Three years at least have passed since that point in time and Peter's certainly on the move. We read that he's travelling throughout the region to visit the saints. He's travelling to meet up with Jewish Christians. Now, these Jewish Christians could either be people who were those who were once in Jerusalem, who had scattered as a result of the persecution, or this particular area in which Peter is currently travelling is also the area in which Philip returned after his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, where he went about preaching the gospel. So maybe it's uh, people who came to know about Jesus through Philip as well. Now, later where we uh, begin 
our passage today is about 40 k's from Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, it gets referred to uh, under the title as Lod. And we encounter a man named Aeneas, a guy who had been paralysed and bedridden for a period of eight years of time. Now, there's all sorts of questions that you would think your natural curiosity wants to ask about this guy. Was he born with a condition that kind of degenerated and now he's been in a bed for eight years? Or did he suffer an injury eight years ago? Is he a Christian? Or is he not a Christian? We're presuming in the context that Peter is visiting with the saints that presumably that he is, but we don't know. Did he even ask to be healed? Because as you read through the passages, just how Peter seems to say, Jesus Christ healed you. Now, I can't give you an answer to any of those questions because the Bible doesn't. And as much as we might be curious for all these minor and finer details, the fact that they're not there means that they're not important. The scripture has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. We don't need to spend hours speculating about what is not said. What is important is what we can know. What we can know is Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ healed you. Rise, make your bed, and immediately he rose. So whether or not he requested to be healed, there's two things that are really clear. One was that he was healed, and secondly, it was by Jesus that he was healed, not by Peter. Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. Now, the healing itself looks a little bit like something we've seen with Jesus. Remember back in Luke chapter 5, and there's another paralytic man that Jesus encounters, and Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious people are having a go at Jesus like, who are you to claim that someone's sins are forgiven? Only God can do that. And Jesus says, what's harder, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? And to show you that I have authority to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic man, rise, take up your bed and walk. Very similar to what we see here happening in um, Peter's ministry as well. But when Jesus did it, he was making a very clear statement. The miracle wasn't the central point. The miracle was to authenticate the person with the message that he was delivering. And is that what we should think of here with Peter? Or is there something more to it? If you just plainly read verse 35, it says, after it says he was healed, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Should we read that to think that Just because they saw the guy who was paralysed is now healed, that alone brought them to saving faith in Jesus. The simple answer to that question is no, because that would stand in complete opposition to what we've seen throughout the rest of Acts and the rest of the Bible. As we've seen other occasions where great miraculous things have been done throughout the book of Acts, say, for example, at Pentecost or even the other guy who was healed who was paralysed in Acts chapter 3, it is always the message about the good news about what Jesus has done that has brought about repentance and saving faith. The miracles have been a peripheral thing to authenticate the messenger 
but also the one Jesus Christ whom they speak about. Likewise, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, how can they come to faith in someone they haven't heard about? And how will they hear unless someone goes and teaches them the good news about Jesus? It's very in the nature of Peter to be a proclaiming person, to speak about Jesus. So as the masses saw this guy who's been healed, they thought there's something about this Jesus that Peter is talking about and they respond in faith to his message. The growth of the gospel, it continues to spread and we shouldn't be surprised because that's the mission that Jesus gave his people. Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now as we look into the next section, we see it moved over to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, over to Joppa. In Joppa, we're introduced to a lady named Tabitha in Aramaic, or Dorcas, is the Greek equivalent of, who was a woman who was really well known for a kind, good works, particularly in making clothes for those who were poor. In the ESV, she's described as being one who is full of good works. Now, sometimes in evangelical circles, we kind of shrink back when we hear the word good works as though it's, you know, we're worried that we're going to give the impression that somehow someone is saved by doing or piling up an amount of good works. After all, the Bible is very clear. Not one single person will be saved, will be justified in God's sight by doing any number of good works. But then on the flip side, you can't ignore the fact the New Testament frequently speaks of us being judged according to our works, giving an account of every action done in the body. Now that's not saying that our good works earn our salvation. It's not saying our good works make us right before God. What it is saying is that a person who is a new creation in Christ will be changed in the way in which they live. It will flow out in good works. It is the fruit of salvation. It's not the means of salvation. A little while ago, Samuel preached an excellent sermon. The topic I gave him was, how can I know I'm saved? And if you were here that week, you would have heard over and over again, by their fruits, you will know them. So how do we combine these two ideas? I think there's no better passage than Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, where it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Now, people often quote verses 8 and 9 and say, Works, nothing to do with it. You are saved by grace. It's God's gift. He gives it to you. It's not your works. But there is a place for works in the bigger picture. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by works, not a single person. But when we are saved for good works in Christ that he prepared and we should walk in them. So followers of Jesus Christ should walk and be characterised by good works and Dorcas or Tabitha 
is a fine example who walking in the good works which have been prepared in advance for her. Now, at the time of our reading, Tabitha has become sick and she's died. And for reasons that we don't specifically know, some of the people know that Peter's nearby and led her, so they send her to Peter and say, send them to Peter and say, you must come urgently. Is it they want Peter to come and celebrate the life of this fine Christian woman? Or are they expecting Peter to do something? That's a question that our passage doesn't specifically answer. But whatever the reason, when Peter arrives, he arrives to a room of people who are mourning the death of this fine Christian woman. And amongst them are some of the widows who presumably have benefited from her care and making clothing for them. And they're showing Peter some of the things that she has made for them. And once again, we see similarities between Peter as the disciple and Jesus who discipled Peter. When you think back to the healing of Jesus, Jesus did towards Jairus' daughter, we see in Luke chapter 8 and Mark chapter 5, in Peter's case and Jesus' case, they're both arriving on the scene to someone who has been dead for some time. When they come onto the scene, they ask a number of people to leave the room. But there's one obvious difference between Peter and Jesus. Peter prays. Jesus has the authority to heal within himself. Peter acknowledges that the authority to heal is external to him. It is through Christ through him. And as he prays, he takes her by the hands, tells her to rise up and walk. And then he invites the saints, the widows back around, and they see that this woman who was definitely dead is alive, well, healthy. Probably not a surprise. Imagine you saw someone who was dead come to life. You're probably not going to think, oh yeah, whatever, I won't tell anyone about that. I see that all the time. And it became known throughout all Joppa and once again many believed in the Lord. Again, we presume Peter is speaking the message. It's the type of guy that he is. But as they see the power of this Jesus who Peter is giving witness to and talking about what he has done, then many believed in the Lord. And it finishes the the passage off. Peter stays with a guy named Simon who was a tanner. You think, well, it's a little extra tidbit. Didn't really need to know about that. But it makes a connection to next week when we look at the conversion of Cornelius. But also for Peter, from his Jewish background, tanners were considered unclean because of the work which they're doing with corpses and carcasses and skins and all that type of thing. And that's preparing Peter, who's going to see some other things declared clean that are very different than his upbringing as a Jew. So what? You're already starting to think that? It's like, okay, you've covered it all. What do you do with something like this? I mentioned earlier on, when I first read the passage, I actually thought, what on earth can I say? What on earth is worth preaching? You've got two rather nondescript healings, nothing particularly unique about them. They're like other ones we've seen before, just a broad sort of generic statement that a lot of people became to, to trust in Jesus as a result. 
And you see, it sits between two massive events. It sits between the conversion of Saul, the greatest opponent of the church, who becomes the greatest builder of the church, and it sits between that and the conversion of Cornelius, the gospel for the first time going to the Gentiles, yet it didn't seem right to lump it, connect it with one or the others just to make it fit in somewhere bigger. And there were parts when I was reading throughout the week where I thought, oh, if only this was the week when Samuel was preaching, he could have this one. <laughs> but you know what? I had to stop and think, why is this hard to preach? Why do I honestly think there's not much to say here? Now, you would have heard me say many, many times, all scripture is profitable, useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work, including this one. Someone who's been paralysed for eight years, instantly healed. And I think, is there anything worth talking about here? Someone who is dead, raised to life. And I'm asking, have I got something to preach? Have I got something to say? Now, have I really become so familiar with Jesus that someone can be raised from the dead and I'm just like, meh, I don't know if I've got anything to preach this week. Or is it little significance that we read that many people in Lydda, Sharon and Joppa came to trust in Jesus as Lord who were passed out of the kingdom of darkness in their sin headed for judgment, graciously brought out of that into the kingdom of Jesus Christ to eternal life and hope now and for the future. The Bible tells us there is much rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And here we've got a description of huge numbers passed from death to life in this day. And I read a passage that describes that. It's like, have I got something to say? There's something wrong, isn't there? There's something dramatically wrong when you can see the almighty power of God at display, both in the healings, something which the angels in heaven rejoice to see, that one sinner repent and turn to faith and hear us some, and we are not moved by it. We think, what are you going to do with this? I needed to preach this passage. Because I needed to get to that point where I asked the question, what, what can I say here? What's worth talking about? Why do I say that? Because it showed me something in my heart I didn't like. It showed me that I'd lost a real sense of awe of who my God is. That I could see his great power in action, see his love and his grace towards a broken people and be so numb to it. That I could read about people being brought out of this sinful condition, their hostility to God, to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, and be not moved at all. 
I wonder sometimes, Christians, we struggle reading the Bible at times. I wonder if sometimes that's because we've lost a sense of aurora of God. We're reading through his word. We think, oh yeah, same old, same old. This is the almighty God who is revealing himself to his people. Who is revealing himself to his people. Who, even though we have been hostile towards him, we said we don't want you in our life. Who's graciously come and died in our place. I wonder if one of the reasons why our church and many churches see so few conversions is that we find no passion and rejoicing in people being saved. To read through a passage where hundreds are coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ when they are being plucked out of our natural course towards judgment and hell to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. If that doesn't cause us to rejoice, no wonder we don't want to see it happen. No wonder we're not celebrating it. No wonder we're not involved in it. And I'd say if any of this resonates with you, that you think, yeah, I read God's word and I just, sometimes I just don't feel like there's much to it. I I admit, I I did read through the passage and I thought, Steve, you got nothing this week. Good luck to you. If this resonates with you, wondering where our sense of awe is gone, wondering what's wrong in our heart, that we're not having a joy and a passion and seeing people being saved, then will you join with me now as we finish in a word of prayer? I'll leave you a time to pray quietly. We are. God, give me a heart that delights in you and that delights to see people who don't know you come to know you in a very real, tangible way. So pray quietly where you are now and then I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we thank you that only because what Jesus has done that we can call upon you as our Father. We were by nature disobedient, headed for the just consequences of our rebellion against our Creator. Lord, forgive us from times when we have made you common and familiar and maybe even elevated in our own hearts that we deserve or or that you owe it to us to do anything for us. Lord, we want to be a people whose hearts delight in you. I mean, this is our, our identity. We are in Christ. We are created in your image. Lord, if there are people here struggling this morning in their 
relationship with you. We may even find it at times a bit of a chore. That you might restore to us the joy of our salvation. That we might have a heart that delights in you, in your character, who you are, and all that you do. And Lord, may it thrill, bring joy to our heart to, to know of anyone whom you graciously save and call to yourself. And in the middle of that, give us a joyous and passionate pursuit in dependence upon you to bring that good news to a people who don't yet know you. Forgive us, restore us, spur us on, and keep our eyes on Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week's reading is a much longer one. It's the entirety of um, Acts chapter 10. and It's not next week, but next time we do Acts, Samuel's doing something next week. Mystery sermon next week.